Welcome back. Hope lunch was good. Uh, my name's Scott Lincecum. I'm an adjunct scholar here with the Cato Institute. And uh, <clears throat> I'll be moderating session number three on NAFTA politics and reality. Um, I'm joined today by Bill Reinch with the Stimson Center, uh, Ricardo Ramirez um, with the WTO, and Phil Levy with Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs. So uh, before I throw it to them, I'm going to start with just a few polls to kind of set the stage for what we are going to talk about for the next hour and 15 minutes. Um, in poll after poll after poll, as I will quickly go through, what we see in the United States, believe it or not, is, uh, and despite the constant bipartisan demonization of trade among, you know, political politicians, um, we actually see public support for NAFTA, trade, and globalization um, steady, if not up. And in fact, on certain polls, as I'll show you in just a second, um, we actually see uh, trade and trade agreements enjoying salad days of support, believe it or not. At the same time, however, we're also seeing the composition of that support change dramatically from year to year. Um, that is a primarily partisan effect, as you can see um, as we go through this, Democrats have suddenly become ardent free traders. Republicans have suddenly become trade skeptics. Up is down, down is up, dogs and cats living together. It's quite different from, say, just a few years ago. And again, we see this over and over again. Uh, and that also goes for NAFTA. NAFTA has gained popularity overall, but it's still right around 50%. Uh, but Republicans and Democrats' views have diverged dramatically, and I think we all understand one of the reasons why. Uh, other things you're going to see in these polls is that um, the young tend to support globalization and trade in NAFTA more than older Americans. Uh, that is pretty consistent across these polls. But also, you see that core Trump supporters, as they're called, very strongly are skeptical of NAFTA and free trade, whereas regular old non-Trump Republicans um, are right in the middle of the pack with independents and Democrats and the rest. Uh, on renegotiation, one of the big topics right now, I highlighted this last point, which I think is, is quite Interesting, only 6% of Americans actually want the United States, according to a Livingston International poll, want the United States to withdraw. Um, the rest think it should be renegotiated, modernized, or even not touched. Um, also see NAFTA as contributing to job loss, but one of many factors overall. And that, again, kind of uh, contradicts the narrative. Um, Gallup's polls, Pew's polls on trade generally all show us really the same things. Again, pretty strong support, or at least middling support for trade, free trade, trade agreements, and so forth in the United States, but significant demographic and partisan differences. Now we'll get to my, one of my favorite polls here at the end. And this is when people's actual money is on the line, however, it's surprising that their support for trade actually increases pretty significantly. Um, so we have to ask, how much of these polls that I just showed you, all of these great polls, 
How much is that of just signaling, patriotic, nationalist, political, whatever it is? Well, that's what we're going to hear to discuss. And we're going to talk about, so why are we here, given this trade support, given the politics, uh, and given that we can see how malleable public opinion is, at least it seems, and given the fact that trade is actually pretty popular overall uh, here in the United States. Um, and with that, I will uh, turn it first. We'll start with Bill um, to talk about the U.S. political situation. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I apologize for missing the morning. I, I teach, among other things, and today was my day. So we, you know, we're not teaching about this, however. But uh, I'm happy to be here. It's perilous, uh, to some extent, to talk about politics on trade because everybody's an expert, and uh, because everybody thinks politics is easy, and everybody talks to different people. So I expect many different opinions, and I expect a lot of people in the audience not to agree with any of the things that any of us say, which is good. We'll have a good um, discussion afterwards. <laughs> I'm going to look at the situation by talking about uh, where some of the stakeholders are, uh, specifically business, labor, Republicans, and Democrats, and then I'll attempt to draw a couple of conclusions, although I think uh, Phil is probably going to have better ones when it's, uh, when it's his turn. Let me start with um, business and labor. And if I have a theme on a lot of this, the theme is uh, division. Uh, and I think one of the things you can say about this president is that he's, he's not a uniter. He's a, he, he's a divider, and he thrives on, on division. And on this issue, he certainly uh, created it or, or uh, exacerbated it, depending on how you look at it. The business community, I would describe as tending to be in, in uh, three different places, although two of them are different only in semantics, I guess. One group believes that, that the president will uh, essentially lose patience uh, and uh, preemptively withdraw from NAFTA once it becomes clear that Canada and Mexico will reject some of the stranger th demands that we've made. That way, he can blame them for not cooperating. <clears throat> the second group believes, uh, in contrast to that, that termination was actually planned from the beginning. And everything that's going on is a, sort of an elaborate scam on the part of the administration and Ambassador Lighthizer, essentially to justify what they have already decided to do, uh, which is either to withdraw or to force Canada or Mexico to withdraw, so again, that they can be blamed. <laughs> Uh, there is, I think, a smaller minority who believe that the president will, again, as he has before, display his ability to settle for very little and declare victory. Um, and I think from the business community's perspective, that would be the best outcome. <coughs> uh, because settling for very little and declaring victory means doing the upgrade things that everybody is for, that are decently semi-non-controversial. Uh, semi uh, and avoiding the things that have aroused so much uh, ire in so many different places. Uh, labor is also uh, uh, divided, uh, and there you can see a division between rank and file, or some rank and file, uh, and leadership. Uh, rank and file union members, particularly from uh, the manufacturing unions, steel, autos, glass, um, heavy manufacturing, 
many of whom voted for Trump, many of whom lived in states that Trump carried, uh, tend to support, uh, they tend to oppose NAFTA, uh, blame NAFTA for their uh, declines in their sectors, and tend to support what he's going to do. Uh, union members in service, uh, in the service unions, which contain a much higher percentage of immigrants, uh, tend to have a, a, a much different view about this. First of all, it's not at the top of their list of things to worry about. They've got other things to worry about. And to the extent they do worry about it, they have a different view than some of the other unions. Uh, that, in turn, makes things complicated for the, uh, the overall labor leadership because they've got to contend with, essentially, kind of a divided house. At the same time, uh, labor leadership, I think, is, is uh, which whose job it is, is to look at the bigger picture, is also looking not at trade, but at all the other things that are going on in any incumbent administration that either help them or hurt them. And in this administration, they see a lot of things, as you might expect, since it's a conservative Republican administration, they see a lot of things they don't like in other areas. So it's unrealistic to expect organized labor leaders uh, to support uh, administration initiatives, even when in the situation when many of their members may be, may be sympathetic. They've tried to square that particular circle by focusing on what they view are the inadequacies in the administration's trade agenda. Uh, the two biggest ones are their, uh, in, in the union's view, the AFL's view, the, the failure to be sufficiently aggressive on uh, labor issues in NAFTA, and particularly on labor measures that will uh, lead to the wage increases in Mexico, which they believe are very important. Uh, and second, uh, they will point to the administration's uh, failure to actually do any of the things that they said they were going to do, beginning with the steel and aluminum 232s, which were going to all be finished, if you, as you recall, by June 30th. And now it's about to be November, and they're still out there. So the labor gets around this by, you know, uh, uh, pointing out those particular problems. All that said, I think what you're in the minute, what you're about to see and beginning to see is a full court press by business to defend NAFTA. Uh, most recently this week, I th you probably saw the auto industry announcement uh, of a sort of a unified approach opposing the proposals that have been made on auto rules of origin. That is significant politically, in part because I'm told it includes the auto dealers. Uh, and if you know American politics, you know that the auto dealers carry uh, a lot of weight because they're in every congressional district in the country, and there's a lot of them, and they tend to be very active politically in their communities. So if the auto dealers come out one way or the other, that has, I think, a, a will have a disproportionate influence on the way this debate plays out. That particular full-court press is going to focus on basically opposing withdrawal, and, and yes, you heard this morning, I think, from some of the business representatives and, and the bad consequences of withdrawal, the individual either companies or trade associations that are affected directly by specific proposals, whether they're rules of origin or trucking or um, the agriculture, various agriculture proposals, they'll be out there opposing those particular proposals with their own arguments. But the overarching you know, business roundtable, U.S. Chamber, NFTC, my former organization approach, I think is going to be on um, why it's a mistake to, to withdraw and abandon the idea of an integrated market. Is that going to work? Uh, who knows? Um, business is famous for coming late to the party, uh, but when it gets there, it usually arrives in full force. 
and does have an Im- impact. There's a lot of fussing right now, uh, again, sort of politically, at the irony of a conservative Republican administration ignoring what uh, the business community says they ought to do. And in fact, telling the business community directly that you are special interests and we are working for the people. Um, that re- caused a lot of eye rolls in the business community when that, when that happens. Um, one of the things that is interesting about this is Ambassador Lighthizer gave a speech where he talked about his ambition to unite this grand coalition of labor, business, and these other parties all in, in, you know, in support of this agreement and led someone, some people in the business community to comment, well, he has succeeded in uniting everybody, uh, but against what he's trying to do rather than for what he's trying to do. And that seems to be the way this is heading. The Republicans also are divided, and this is reflected in part on the data you just saw. Um, there's a growing gap between Republican voters and Republican politicians. Republican elected politicians, particularly in the House, tend to be traditional, conservative, if not libertarian, pro-trade Republicans. Listen to the Speaker. Listen to the Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Listen to most of them. Their electorate is drifting in the opposite direction, uh, and they have to deal with you know, that particular problem. At the same time, they are, because of their own personal views, they're very uncomfortable with what the administration is proposing, but are very clearly reluctant, with a couple of notable exceptions, one that you saw this week, very reluctant to oppose the administration publicly. Uh, They're concerned about the political risk of being attacked uh, by the populist right. They're concerned about the political risk of being primaried. And if you know the way our system has evolved, you know that uh, as the center disappears, districts become more and more clearly Democratic or clearly Republican, which means the primary becomes the more important stage in the election. They're worried about being primaried. And in the Republican Party, it's you, you kind of go against your president at your peril. They don't like to do that, regardless of who the president is. And they particularly don't like to do it with this president because he is, has a long-standing reputation for getting even. So uh, they're divided, conflicted. They're also conflicted because they're nervous about the relationship between this issue and the tax bill. Um, the, uh, they're telling the White House that don't do anything to rock the boat on trade while the tax bill is going on because we want to get the tax bill finished. We could spend a whole day, in fact, Cato probably will spend a whole day at a later date on, on the tax bill and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and what its timing is, so I won't go into that. But I think it's fair to say that you can probably, probably will not see any apocalyptic event in NAFTA, at least by the United States, until after the tax bill situation is clarified. But the Republicans are very nervous that you know, one of these things is going to get in the way of the other. There's also an undercurrent of concern, uh, which is growing, about the ambiguity of the underlying legislation that addresses the question of who actually can withdraw from NAFTA and what happens if we do. And there's been some work, in fact, like we just talking, Scott's firm has done uh, some work on this subject, as has probably every other law firm in town. And there's work going on on this in the Hill right now, trying to figure out uh, uh, what happens. And it, there are constitutional issues that involve because the Constitution uh, gives uh, a lot of trade authority to the, to the legislative branch, and it gives uh, the authority to conduct foreign relations with the executive branch. And uh, there's a possibility here that that might collide uh, at a later pay- 
point. So there's a lot of effort uh, underway behind the scenes to try to figure out um, uh, the truth of that situation, which I think is probably impossible because I've looked at the statutes and they're, they're both contradictory and ambiguous. Uh, but that might in turn lead to an effort to sort that out uh, and clarify the situation, not only with respect to NAFTA, but with respect to all agreements because there are signs that this may be the first of several. Finally, there's the Democrats. They're also divided and out of sync with their voters. As you can see here, well, it went away, but as you could see, uh, Democratic voters have actually fairly consistently been pro-trade, and that is growing, whereas the biggest locus of anti-trade sentiment in the Congress has always been the House Democratic Caucus. So that creates dilemmas. What we're seeing now, I think, is that even those who have always opposed NAFTA and have problems with it and are probably inclined to support some of the president's proposals, nonetheless have joined in what appears to be the Democrats' strong desire to oppose the administration on virtually everything uh, unless it is uh, developed in a, on a truly bipartisan basis rather than just a token bipartisan basis. A token one means you get one or two Democrats to sign on and call it bipartisan. A real one means you actually sit down with the other party and have a meeting uh, and negotiate something out. The, the, the recent Murray-Alexander healthcare thing is probably an example of, of real bipartisanship. Of course, we'll see how far it gets. Um, that's not happening right now on trade, and that pushes the Democrats into all of them, really, into reasons to oppose what Trump is doing, even though they might like what he's doing. And that brings them back into labor's uh, camp, and they buy into the labor agenda, which is you're not doing enough to deal with uh, Mexican wages. You're not dealing enough, doing enough to uh, create uh, enforceable uh, provisions about uh, labor reforms um, in, in Mexico. And you're not delivering on your other trade promises, so why do we think you're going to deliver on these? What is also going on in the Democratic Party, which is, uh, intrigues me enormously, is second thoughts about withdrawal anyway. Uh, on the merits. And some people have likened this to Republicans in healthcare. You know, as long as it was impo as long as it was never going to happen, it was easy to be against the healthcare uh, program. Once it became a realistic possibility that they could get rid of it, it got suddenly get, became a very complicated issue. And this is happening to the Democrats right now on uh, on um, on uh, NAFTA. As long as they had no chance of getting rid of it, they were against it. Now that it may actually go away, uh, they're beginning to think twice about it. You excuse, see this particularly in the Texas delegation, which is a state that probably has the most to lose in the short term. And suddenly people are saying, well, wait a minute, we need to think about this. This might be bad for Texas. And they're right about that. So there's also that rethinking going on, even amongst people that historically have not been uh, pro-trade. I think the bottom line for the Democrats is the pro-trade Democrats, and there actually are some, They'll oppose what the administration is trying to do because they don't like what it's trying to do. Uh, the rest of the Democrats will not support what the administration is trying to do because uh, their current tactic is to oppose everything that he's trying to do. Um, which brings me to conclude to what I see as, you know, there's just uh, four scenarios here, and it's impossible at this point to predict what will happen. One scenario is always the possibility of an agreement. That would require major walkbacks, either by the United States or by the other two countries. Um, I would never rule that out. Uh, particularly, the president does have a, ha a record, you can look at what happened in China this summer, of 
settling, as I said, for very little and declaring victory, so I wouldn't rule that out. Um, an agreement that uh, accomplished most of his objectives, I would argue, would have a very difficult time passing Congress um, because of the opposition that would be mounted, among, other thing, among others, by the business community. Uh, the other two scenarios are that somebody withdraws, us or the Canadians or the Mexicans. I think in that circumstance, uh, there's probably not a consensus in Congress to actually do anything about that. There'd be a lot of fussing uh, and a lot of rhetoric and maybe a bill or two introduced, but I don't think that there is a critical mass there prepared to act in defiance of what the president uh, decides to do or what other countries do to us. The final scenario, which I think is becoming more likely, is sort of um, uh, this bizarre form of sort of circular firing squad where everybody, all three of the countries are standing there glaring at each other, guns pointed, and nobody is willing to pull the trigger. Uh, but nobody is willing to agree to anything either. Uh, and so the talks just continue, uh, and uh, maybe we say we're going to withdraw, and then we don't. Uh, which is what Trump was implying earlier this week. Maybe the Canadians say something similar. Who knows? But uh, the trigger never gets pulled, and this thing goes on indefinitely. If you look at the steel 232, that's exactly what's, ha what's been happening so far. So uh, I leave you in a state of ambiguity. I don't know what's going to happen. I think those are the possibilities, and Cato should probably do this again in probably three months, and maybe it'll be a little clearer. Thanks. Good afternoon again. Um, let me give you some uh, some of what I think is the political scenario in Mexico. First, I will try to address what is NAFTA scenario in Mexico, how is NAFTA perceived in Mexico. Then what is the political scenario, especially in light of the upcoming elections in July 1st. And finally, I will try to play out two scenarios where uh, with or without NAFTA, how these political uh, uh, scenarios will play. Uh, I think uh, the President of the United States has achieved what uh, we couldn't achieve for 23 years, which is uh, get the highest support of the NAFTA that Mexico has ever perceived. So I, I think everyone in Mexico now has rallied uh, in favor of the NAFTA, as ever. Uh, just to give you an example, there was when the objectives of USTR came out, the first ones, and there was a clear provision that they will get rid of Chapter 19. Uh, the next day, or even the, the next day, a, a group of senators said, there's no way we will agree to Chapter 19 and issue a statement very strong on favoring Chapter 19. I wonder how many of those senators even realize what chapter 19 was about. But, but again, I, I just try to, to put you in perspective that all branch of governments, all people within Mexico are rallying in favor of the NAFTA like I never seen before. Uh, of course, I think you add to that that there is a, a very strong perception on the credibility of the NAFTA team. So, uh, as I say in the morning, the, the persons who are now negotiating NAFTA come for a fourth or fifth generation of NAFTA negotiators that go back to uh, the roots of Serra, Herminio, and Jaime Sabludowski, all of them 
feel that we are children or grandson of them. And, and at the end, they have a lot of credibility. And even some of the former NAFTA negotiators are advising companies, Mexican and foreign, in these negotiations. So at the end, I think what has happened is that they have they have come up together, and 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 really, it's 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 it's, it's interesting how how Mexico is united to preserve the NAFTA. Uh, it, it's also the strategy that has been followed by the government has has had a lot of support. At the end, the Mexican government has not engaged in a Twitter battle, has just stood there, has listened has sat on the table, has been constructive, has said, has been very clear that we want a good agreement, we will address a good agreement, we will not sign up to a to agreement that goes against Mexican interests. So with that support, I think uh, it is perceived in Mexico that the strategy is the correct one, not to engage, not to uh, even, even be be open to, to proposals. Uh, I think even in the last round, the Mexican minister said, we will, we will uh, consider this, we will address. Some of them are very difficult, but never, I don't see any scenario, at least where Mexico will, will, will leave the table of negotiation or, or withdraw uh, unilaterally. I, I just don't see it. Uh, it's, it's very interesting what is happening because you have, on one hand, a lot of support for the NAFTA, especially coming from a, from a government which has a weak presidency. Let's, let's have to say it. There's been a lot of, uh, of allegations of corruptions and allegation on, on, on rule of law. And, and besides that, the people in Mexico have rallied and, and supported the government as to the NAFTA. So this is what we have on the NAFTA side. What do we have on the political side? Well, we have elections on July uh, 1st of next year. We, uh, we don't know yet, or at least we know one candidate, but we don't know the other ones. We have four, there will be four major actors. Uh, the first one, of course, will be uh, a candidate by the ruling party. Uh, there are some names floating around, but there has been no pronouncement on who will, will, will be the, the candidate of that. Uh, recently, there was a coalition. A coalition was formed between, a left, the, between the, the most important right party and a left party, where they would presumably put forward a candidate. Uh, then you have a left, uh, a left can, uh, party, a party from the left uh, side, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who already ran uh, for the presidency. According to the polls, he is the one that is like up there, uh, at least winning, at least has the most uh, popularity. And finally, I, I don't have a name, but I, I can certainly see that there will be an independent candidate from the Mexican side. So basically you're dealing with four players. I don't see a Mexican president winning by a margin of more than 40% uh, or even 30-something percent. So there you have the four of them. Uh, it's interesting that there has been no clear pronouncement, aside from, the, of course, the, the, the government, 
uh, as to what to do with the NAFTA, aside from giving it support. Uh, candidates, or at least the, the people that want to be candidates of, of, of each of these parties, have not been clear of what, what, what are you going to do with the NAFTA. Not even López Obrador, which, which is being perceived like he will go against the NAFTA. I have, I have not heard López Obrador going after the NAFTA and saying that uh, he will withdraw from the NAFTA. At, at the end, I think all candidates are waiting and see what is going to happen. And I do see a scenario where uh, the more we go down the road of the negotiation and the more we go down the road of, of the election, so we get close to July 1st, the more the candidacy will be, or the, at least the statements or at least the strategy will be colored by the NAFTA, will be colored by what, what is happening on, on the NAFTA. So I think even though now is not, it will be a major platform, at least for, for the four candidates, uh, as to the NAFTA, as to what to do with the NAFTA. Uh, so how do we play out the scenarios? So you have strong support of the NAFTA, you have four candidates running for the presidency. So let's, let's see. With NAFTA, so let's imagine the best scenario. It gets... A, it gets a, I think they already pushed back to March, I think. So let's have, uh, we sign an agreement uh, end of March. There will be some legal scrubbing, blah, blah, blah. It will be, let's say they will be signed before the election. Uh, in that scenario, there will be a new Senate in Mexico who, uh, who will have to approve that. So that will be, that will be, uh, that will be a, uh, I think that, that that needs to be taken into account. And it will be implemented by a different administration because the president will be gone by December 1st, 2018. So if, if everything holds on, at least what we are seeing is that the NAFTA will need to be, will have to be approved by a different Senate. Currently, the ruling party has the majority in the Senate. I, I cannot speculate, but I, I, I see that may be difficult uh, for, the, for the upcoming Senate. So regardless of what the result or who will win, I think that's something that will need be need taken into account. What happens without NAFTA? Um, I think the current administration has the full support at least of civil society and, and everyone. If at the end, United States withdraws from the NAFTA, I think there will be full support to the Mexican administration. Uh, I think the Mexican government may be already working on a plan B, which is what we do with, without NAFTA. And, and John was mentioning in the morning about this issue of tariffs being high by Mexico and we, we, our MFN tariffs being very high. The problem that this will generate is the political pressure that the government will face to keep that tariffs high. As opposed to what I think the government should go for, which is try to preserve this global value change and try to preserve the flow. So I do see a scenario where you will have a long line of uh, those uh, products, steel, autos, and 
and other textiles who will come and say, well, let's, let's impose high tariffs. And the problem with this is that this will be colored by a period where you have elections, uh, where, the press, where, where the government will be in exactly in the middle of the elections. So at the end, it will be, they will be subject to political pressure. So you will have, Mexico has high tariffs. There will be a lot of requests to go even to the bound rate as opposed to going to, uh, to, to reducing tariffs uh, to the same or at least putting in the same level, uh, the same level of, of uh, playing field with, with the United States and Canada. So this is, this is what, what the problematic part of, of a scenario without NAFTA. Because at the end, I don't think the government and I don't think anyone wants high tariffs because I, I think you want to preserve the flow. You want to, uh, at least you want to give some assurances to companies that the flow will continue. So Mexico might want to unilaterally uh, reduce the tariffs and put it to a level. But they will be faced with a lot of pressure not to do that, especially in light of a coming election. Uh, so at the end, I, I will leave it like that. And, okay. and, and thank you. Well. All right, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you all, and thank you to Cato and the organizers. A very timely topic and, and fun to discuss. I'm going to touch on three points so we can get to discussion. I'll try to be concise. It doesn't always work. Um, I want to talk about politics, about timing, and about trust. So first on politics, um, supporters of the current administration often talk about the president as somebody who plays you know, five-dimensional chess. Um, if so, it would be nice to see that start uh, with, with the NAFTA negotiations because there's a sort of more traditional view of international trade negotiations that they require something of that sort. You had Robert Putnam talking about two-level games where you have to get a domestic consensus and, of course, you have to reach an agreement with, your, with other countries. Um, you could even talk about whether there are multiple layers um, in the domestic consensus, and, and I will. So let me just sort of point out, if one were being really serious about trying to pursue an NAFTA 2.0, um, what are the constituencies one would have to be thinking hard about? Um, and many of these are already mentioned. Bill did a fine job of talking about the politics. So at one level, there's business and agriculture and labor, you know, groups out there uh, in the economy that you need to think about. At another level, there's the Congress, ultimately, since they have the power to either pass or fail to pass an NAFTA 2.0 you would be working hard to make sure they were on side, so working hand-in-hand hand with the Ways and Means Committee and the, the Finance Committee. Not only is this generally a good idea, it's actually required by law. Um, and then, of course, you have to be trying to figure out what's going to sell uh, with your trade partners, with Canada and Mexico. Um, so that's what one would be doing if one were really serious about this. Ambassador Lighthizer clarified, I think this last week or so, that actually he's just got a constituency of one, that, that he's trying to please, which is the president. And the, the presumption, which I think he's made explicit, uh, is that if you get that set, everything else will work out. Um, well, we, we do actually have a couple of lessons here if one's trying to assess that kind of a statement. Um, to some extent, that was the, the working presumption in the latter part of the TPP negotiations, that just you know get an agreement and never mind what was being said on the Hill, it will all work out. Um, it didn't. 
we've seen this somewhat with some of the health care legislation. You need to pass this stuff because, you know, do it for the president, do it for the party. It will all work out. Not so much. Um, so I think there's some reasons to doubt that, uh, whether this, this approach, whether the constituencies are being properly developed. We can ask, and this is sort of my, the last thing I want to do on the politics part of this, let's suppose that when we're going to develop this, what you'd be seriously trying to do is think, what coalition am I putting together in Congress that would pass an, a deal, if that's my goal, is to pass a NAFTA 2.0. And because of TPA, the, the uh, Trade Promotion Authority, I don't need to worry about filibusters, so I need to get 50 votes in the Senate. That's not usually the hard part. The hard part is getting the you know, 218 in the House. So how hard is that, and what might that coalition look like? Well, we don't have very recent um, data on this. We still have to go back a couple of years to when we took this TPA vote. Um, that's where it wasn't that close in the Senate, but at the House it was extremely close. Um, and the coalition that supported Trade Promotion Authority on the second try, if I recall, was, uh, I believe, 190 Republicans and 28 Democrats. This was under a Democratic president um, who was pushing for authority for a Democratic president. Um, so you might have thought that that would have been something of a high watermark of Democratic support. It's a couple of years ago. Opinions may have changed, but Bill did a very nice job of summarizing what some of the politics are um, in the Democratic Party. That would suggest that one needs to be thinking very carefully about that if you take that kind of a coalition, a TPA-like coalition, then you're doing a more conventional approach, and then you better think hard about what Republican leaders think. And close observers will note some fairly big discrepancies between what people like um, Kevin Brady or Orrin Hatch are saying and what the president is espousing on trade or Ambassador Lighthizer. So that's a concern for that coalition. There is this question of could you have an alternative coalition? Could it be something – Ambassador Lighthizer, as Bill said, has talked about this ambition for something broader and bipartisan. Um, some difficulties with that. You know, this is the Sherrod brown Lori Wallach coalition. The, what difficulty number one, the Democrats are in, minor, in the minority. So when you try to push these things through – it does matter who has control, for example, of the House floor and how you do this. If you worked TPA the right way, you might be able to force some of these things. I'll get to that in the timing section. Um, there's a broader question, and I think this may be behind some of what Bill was talking about, of whether you really want NAFTA planks resolved or is it more valuable as an issue? Um, I suspect that it, it, this is not unique and it's certainly not only the Democrats who, who play this game, but sometimes these things are more valuable as an issue, particularly if you've overpromised about what a NAFTA 2.0 would do. Um, I think we had a very useful discussion this morning about overpromising on the original NAFTA, but ask yourselves, um, if we did a NAFTA 2.0 which had sunset provisions and 50% you know, American content requirements, how many additional American jobs is that going to create? Um, is that actually going to make America great again? Um, I have a feeling that there might be some real disappointment if one went through with the plan. Um, I would also note it's very tempting when you get statements like one got this past week from someone like uh, Lori Wallach that you know the sine qua non is that you get rid of ISDS. I realize that resonates with, with certain people in the room. Hey, Dan. Um, I, there's a question, though. Is that a <laughs> – yes. There's, there's a question. Um, 
how much is that, you know, once you get past that, anything's possible? Or is it that's the first of multiple uh, demands? Discussions I've had with um, some trade critics suggest there's often a, a question of solidarity that, you know, there's, okay, this is what you do on ISDS, then what do you do on labor requirements? What do you do on environmental issues? And a long list and a great reluctance to say, uh, if you solve two out of four of those, am I going to be okay? Am I willing to jettison these other members of a coalition? So that would be um, that would be a, a question to ask if one were thinking about that alternative coalition. So one of, part of a long list. So I'm somewhat dubious. To sum up on the politics, they don't seem to be creating a coalition, and that's what you need to get things done. Okay, let me turn to timing. Um, this is not a real estate deal. It's not something you do on sort of a long weekend with, you know, golf in the mornings and, and the negotiations in the afternoon. Um, it, it differs in some important ways. Uh, to me, the easiest way to do this is to take wildly optimistic assumptions and show how even that leads you to a pretty difficult place. So wildly optimistic assumption number one, and I'll thank Scott for this one, is that let's assume this is actually all governed by TPA. There is some question about this in terms of it's a renegotiation to TPA, but I'll leave that to the lawyers um, to sort out. Um, but let's assume it is. And let's further assume that despite all of the things we've heard so far, you know, they, they reconvene um, the, the negotiators in mid-November. Uh, the break did them good. They all of a sudden see everything the same way. And they, within a month or so, managed to actually come to an agreement. So now we have an agreement. What next? Well, so one thing is, if you are touching on trade remedies, um, and given the notification they did, you can't actually sign anything until March. You had a TPA gave a six-month notification requirement that was in September, so it's March. So then you're ready to go, right? Well, not exactly. That's when you submit something to the U.S. International Trade Commission, and you say, please conduct a study showing what this does for the U.S. economy. You're saying please, but it's actually required by law. So they do this. You may at that time urge them quickly, quickly, let's, let's pick it up a little, which was done during the TPP. And they said, no, I don't think so. This is a really controversial topic. We want the full six months to study this. So you go six months down the line. Now you are in September of 2018. And now you can start doing things like statement of administrative action and submitting it to the Congress. But you look at the calendar and you realize that you've only got about a month and a half to go before the midterm elections. And when you're counting out things like legislative days, there are almost none. So you're not using TPA to force any action during the existing Congress. Um, they probably don't want to take it up anyways. So where are we? Now we are in early 2019 with another Congress. And if you're thinking about coalitions, that depends a lot on who's in the Congress, who controls uh, the House, for example, um, who has you know chairmanship of which committees. And so, and this is just setting aside some of the very good questions about what Mexican politics look like. I'm again, I'm being Pollyanna-ish here, so let's just assume that everything works out there. So even in this everything works out scenario, it's 2019 when you are starting to move something like this through the U.S. Congress if you've gotten a deal. Um, so that's problematic. Uh, I think, um, and by the way, I would also note, we do have some lessons of history if we're thinking about what happens when you get, say, control of Congress changing. Those who were around and doing this stuff in 2007, for example, saw that we had, you know, several, a number of, four negotiated agreements at that point. That was when we had um, Peru, Colombia, Panama, um, and Korea, I think. Um, so we had the four pending agreements you had a change in control of the House, and 
there was there had to be a renegotiation. That was the whole May tenth thing. So uh, e- even if that were to happen, that would also sort of shake things up. All right. Final point that I wanted to make was about trust, which is. Seeing this and being intelligent, what do our trade partners think and what must they think? And we've gotten signs of this. I I think, again, there was a TPP lesson in this. Um, I was struck by how frequently many of our U.S. trade partners um, during the TPP negotiations were willing, at least, to ignore U.S. domestic politics. And, you know, Ambassador Froman, USTR at the time would assure them, you worry about your domestic politics, we'll worry about our domestic politics, and, you know, trust me, it'll it'll all be fine in the end. They may still remember that experience um, as they look at the current situation, in which case they probably don't take heart in this. If you sort of look and say, is this being set up? The thing to remember in all of this, and this is why I label this under trust, is our trading partners make concessions and do these things um, at political cost. If our Canadian friends decide that, you know, they actually like cheap milk and milk products, and maybe this isn't such a bad idea to liberalize dairy, that's not an innocuous thing to to agree to in Canadian politics. Maybe one does it if you think there's a, a big deal there that sort of cements a partnership and, you know, is definitely going to go through the U.S. Congress. Not something you want to do if it ends up just sort of sitting there and you're exposed and it goes nowhere. Um, so this actually then, using back-solving means it's a problem for settling these agreements. All right, so I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, What I would just note is uh, we haven't really set the stage for successful passage of of an AFTA 2.0, which is one reason I worry a lot about withdrawal. Thanks, Phil. So um, now we're going to do some some Q&A. Before we begin, a couple ministerial announcements. Uh, Please, of course, wait to be called on. Uh, Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room can hear you, including those who are watching online. And then please announce your, your name and affiliation. And then last, I'll add one. Please uh, ask questions instead of making long statements. Um, I'm going to take the uh, moderator's privilege and start off with my own question. Uh, because I think you know we've heard a lot of great analysis, but it's been all very analytical. And now I want predictions. So we've heard the scenarios, but uh, let's forget the scenarios. I want you're the, you guys are the experts. So we really have with three options. We have an agreement either sooner or maybe a little later, uh, a withdrawal or collapse of sorts, one party doing that, and then a, the last option, what I will call the Doha round option, which is, things just go on interminably. We are back here in six years talking about when we're going to wrap up NAFTA negotiations. So um, with that, I'll, I'll go in the order we, we went earlier um, and start with Bill. That's a wonderful analogy, the Doha round uh, outcome. I hadn't thought thought about that, but that actually is an accurate description of what I was trying to say. Um, If you talk to the business community right now, I think they would say there's a 50% chance of withdrawal without specifying by whom, just 50% that it it falls apart, that 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 NAFTA falls apart. Um, I'm kind of there myself. Uh, I do think, though, that I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that the Doha round scenario might become more, more viable, um, largely because of some things the president has said this week. The problem, of course, with this particular president is that what he says this week may not be the same as what he says next week. Next week. It certainly wasn't the same as what he said last week. Uh, so I'm torn between, you know, 50-50 withdrawal or Doha. Okay. Ricardo. 
Well, it's, it's difficult for me to predict because I think it will be all a function of U.S. politics. <laughs> so at the end, I, I don't see Mexico uh, stepping out or withdrawing in any scenario. I do see Mexico playing out any of the scenario, including the Doha round uh, scenario. Uh, I think at least what I see will be a function of all other internal matters within the U.S., of how this will play out. And at the end, Canada and Mexico putting up, being constructive, and trying to play the judo part, which was mentioned in one of the, the sessions. Uh, that, that's the way you see it. Okay. Thanks. Phil? Yeah. Um, I'll play the starry-eyed optimist and give a 10% chance of an actual agreement. Um, in there somewhere. Not easy to do. I think it would look very different from what's been put on. But we had some good discussion this morning about the things that you might have in there. Somebody decides they need a win. Um, I'll go with the 50% chance of withdrawal um, as well. I think if we compare it, which leaves me with 40 for um, for the Doha <laughs> option. I think the problem with the Doha option is that it, it basically requires patience, that you have to be willing to sort of let these things go on. <laughs> that does not seem to be our comparative advantage at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, th hence the worry about withdrawal. Okay, thank you. Could I, could I do a PS on Oh yeah, sure, please. Uh, one of the things that's come up uh, lately is this idea that, well, uh, on the part of the president, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, file the notice of termination at some point, the six month thing, but then I'm not going to pull the trigger. Uh, six months later, nothing will happen. That leads then to the Doha scenario. Uh, I think people are still trying to evaluate, A, why that makes strategic sense, but B, if you're, if you're a company or a, or a farmer, for that matter, um, what is the inflection point for you? It seems to me if the president formally says, we're going to withdraw in six months, that's kind of a signal that you need to go to plan B, whatever your plan B is, uh, and it will be different for every, everybody. And, you know, the possibility that, well, I'll wait around for six months and maybe he won't do it, and I, it doesn't seem to me to be the way that normally uh, in a market economy, that, that that's the way that actors uh, act. So it seems to me that even if you, even if you take the first step, the negative effects that would ensue from that are, are going to happen fairly quickly at that point, even if you don't end up pulling the trigger in the end. Great point. Okay, so uh, with that, we'll start there. It's hard to see with that. Thank you. Uh, Steve Charnovitz from George Washington University. So, Bill, you, you raised uh, the interesting question of whether the president can unilaterally on his own withdraw from NAFTA. And there's been some writings about that. Now, it seems to me that, that there is a really interesting issue is if the president withdraws, then how does that affect the tariffs and the other provisions that we have, and how does that affect the U.S.-Canada agreement and all that? But just on the question of presidential withdrawal, I'm wondering where the business community is on that, because it seems to me as if President Trump's action can be challenged in court, and a lot of President Trump's actions have been challenged in court. But if we're going to move toward a rule that a president cannot pull out of a treaty without approval of the Congress, recognizing how dysfunctional the Congress is, then I wonder how that is going to affect 
U.S. foreign relations generally and our ability to enter into treaties in the future. Scott may want to comment on this as well, but sure. Uh, and I don't, I don't, was this something that was discussed this morning? The, the, uh, okay. <laughs> if, if, if I've had to spend, for client purposes, I've had to spend some time thinking about it. And, and the, I mean, the short answer is the statutes are, as I said, are ambiguous and contradictory. It's not clear what was, what's happened. If, if your larger question of the, the impact on foreign policy, in po policy uh, I think it could be significant because it raises a fairly significant constitutional issue. There are uh, different parts of the Constitution, Article, well, Article 1 and 2, that give different parties, different powers to the two branches of government that uh, you could reasonably argue are at odds on this particular question. And the statute, uh, the statute is, is quite clear that the United States can withdraw. But the statute doesn't go beyond saying, you know, who the United States is or who acts for the United States. And my conversations on the Hill, it, it, I think there's a very, there, there's a, uh, a lot of people on the Hill who think that the answer to that is clear, that it's the Congress that acts for the United States in this case, and that the president can't do this without their assent. I'm sure the president has a different view. Um, that's the kind of issue that ends up, uh, I think it will be litigated, you're right. Um, there's the question of standing. Uh, you know, who could bring, who could make that lawsuit? And my current view is that despite a lot of grumping, grumpiness in Congress on that issue, I don't see them getting organized enough to bring, to litigate on behalf of their branch of the government. Uh, it would be a private party who would then take their chances on the standing issue. Uh, and I think it would end up in the Supreme Court, and then we'd see if, if it is, if the court were to come out in favor of the legislative branch, in Article One, Section Eight, I think that would have a very significant impact on foreign policy going, going forward because it would tie the president's hands in some fairly significant ways, um, which is, to my mind, why they probably why they would not rule that way. But you know, the, there's a good argument on both sides. But Scott studied actually. Well, yeah, I mean, I would just I would uh, a couple of clarifications. Um, first, I mean, I think it's critical to distinguish between treaties and congressional executive agreements, uh, particularly on trade. Uh, trade agreements, and, and I'm, I'm going to here, I'm, I just give you kind of the, what the academic legal community is kind of thinking, not um, my personal opinion. The, uh, the, the, the thinking on this is that, look, this is not a, a standard treaty that falls far more clearly under the foreign affairs power of the president and, of course, uh, constitutional provisions on treaties. Uh, instead, a, this is a congressional executive agreement, and it falls under Article One, Section 8, which is an express delegation of power to the Congress to regulate foreign commerce, where Congress is far stronger, so goes the, the theory, than in the case of the treaty power. So I'm a little bit less certain about how this would affect general foreign affairs, kind of general uh, foreign policy negotiations, as opposed to trade negotiations. In that regard, I think that it might be more significant. But I think the main takeaway is that we don't know. And in fact, I didn't give my own prediction about where the, prediction, where the negotiations are heading. But one of the reasons why I'm actually not in the 50% withdrawal camp, I think it's a little under 50%, is because of the massive amount of legal ambiguity that exists under our laws with respect to all of this. And I think that the, <laughs> the uncertainty that, would, that already exists and that would inevitably be amplified tenfold due to 
that ambiguity, I think, is, is, a, is something that will become clearer and clearer as if we start heading towards that way. And then the last thing I would just note is I, I'm a bit more confident that our Congress would finally get its act together and, and maybe stand up to the president in this regard, but only after tax reform is finished. It's not going to come up until after tax reform is finished. Exactly. So no, I mean, you know, and, and you know, we, we can joke, but in quite, quite seriously, I mean, look, all of this has to wait until tax reform is done. And I mean done either past or dead. And then the gloves come off and we, we see who's left standing. So, yeah, right here. Thank you, Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. My uh, quick, quick response, everybody's studying the same issue. My reading is the president can withdraw from an executive agreement. What happens after that is a big question since what Congress has approved is implementing legislation unless there's something in there I don't know. So. But my question is different, it's gonna be short. Manchester Trade has a theory that what we should be looking at now are landing zones. Forget what people are talking about because they're negotiators and we never had a negotiator-in-chief president who has his own theory of where leverage comes from. If you start from the premise that there will be pressure to put some kind of an ending in March, other issues can be left open, can be discussed technically. It's clear to me that, Reg that President Reagan, my lord, that President Trump is counting on a second term. He's talking already about a review. It won't be a sunset review, it's a review. So there's a good chance that you can end up with something saying, okay, we solved issues. These are already moving. I'm going to wait for five years, three years, see what happens, because we now have an agreement among companies, automobiles, to try to work to balance things out. If we were going to end in March, which is the date because of the elections, all that other jazz and so on. What do you think we could, how do you think we can end it? And if we can end it with this, some solves or a low hanging fruit solves, other put together, how do you envision that? So I'm asking you to take the premise, we're gonna end with something and asking you what you think would go in that ending. Thank you. I'll take a first cut at this. I think um, to get something I wrote about this once that the president had to choose between being sort of rapid or revolutionary. So if you're going to be rapid, you're not going to be revolutionary. So you can, you've got, um, you know, the, the various chapters, the, the modernizing chapters that you had of the TPP that you could take in. Still a little bit more problematic than people give it credit for because the TPP was not balanced on a bilateral basis. So that, you know, Canada and Mexico were getting payoffs, political, you know, compensation, as it were, from the Asian countries who then are no longer there. And so they might say they wanted to balance, but they could have a motive for an agreement so you could do this. That just poses a really big political problem for the president because he campaigned saying, with leaving some doubt about which was more awful, the TPP or the NAFTA. And so saying, here, I've done it. I managed to combine TPP and NAFTA. Aren't you happy? That may be a hard thing to, to sort of to push forward. Um, so I think that's, that's the key difficulty with this um, in terms of how you shape it, that, it, that they've sort of set expectations about where that's going to go, which, which are very problematic. Nothing? Okay. Any, did you have anything, Bill? I think I'd better pass on this one. Okay. Yeah, sure. We'll start up front. Thank you. John Weeks from Canada, Bennett Jones. Um, I have a question. 
and I'll try and do it without commentary. <clears throat> Assuming uh, an agreement is reached among the three countries and it's put to Congress and Congress votes it down, what does that then mean for the original NAFTA? Well, I, th that's a, I was going to get into that in, on Steve's question, then I decided that discretion was a better part of valor. I mean, this is a little bit different than TPP in that you know, is, there is a, it's a different, there's a different default position. You know, if you negotiate an agreement and it's rejected, you still have what you had before uh, because you haven't taken the ministerial steps that you would need to take to get rid of it. So the default of failure would be NAFTA. Now, that then, of course, begs the question, in that eventuality, what would the president do? Um, I mean, it's a little hard to predict, but I think in the short run, if Congress, you know, if there were an agreement reached, Congress voted it down, which I think is not unrealistic if, because the agreement, if an agreement were reached on the president's terms, there would be massive opposition to it from all but about three economists in the country and the entire business community, uh, and that would make a, a tough vote in, in Congress. So it could go down, and if it goes down, what you're left with is NAFTA. Then does he withdraw at that point? Um, you know, I, I couldn't begin to predict that. From Canada's perspective, of course, then the remaining, and we, we discussed this last night, is if NAFTA goes away, are you then left with the U.S.-Canada FTA? You know, Mexico is left hanging in the breeze, but there is a prior agreement which uh, could, I think, uh, I think as we agreed last night, could be put back into place, although the countries would have to take some steps to do that. If, if I can just add to that, um, and counsel here can correct me, we wouldn't actually hit that point for quite a long time. So you could have Congress, because of the sort of timing of this, they could sit on this for a very long time, that the very first step in terms of Congress having to state a position, if I recall, it's, there's 45 legislative days for this to be considered by the House Ways and Means Committee. These are legislative days, not calendar days. Therefore, it stretches on for, for quite a while. And I think you need to have, was a 30-day notice of statement of administrative action to start this all off. So you're gonna, you'd be months and months and months into 2019 right. by the time you would hit the first point where, because if, if Congress actually opposes it, the easiest thing is just to sit on it. That's what TPA is meant to prevent. But because of the timing of this, it would be mid-2019 by the time you'd actually have that kind of a stance. And, and let's not forget that Congress could also suspend TPA, uh, like Nancy Pelosi did um, with, what was it, the Columbia FTA in 2006 or 2007. So there, there are, I mean, we're assuming, and, and then as Phil mentioned earlier, we're even assuming that TPA really does apply. Oh, and we're assuming that, t maybe you can say something about this, we're assuming the TPA gets renewed. Well, yes, I, I was just going to say it expires next July 1. Oh, great. And uh, of course, if I think if if, if this if there is an agreement, it, it, taking your hypothesis, if there's an agreement and it's before the expiration, then the law would continue to apply. But if it, if the if the if the agreement is not concluded before July one, which would be a possible scenario, then TPA might expire, and then all bets are off entirely unless Congress renews it. And one of the debates that hasn't really begun yet is. Will the president ask for it to be uh, extended for three years because the, the law gives him authority to do that? Uh, and uh, my guess is if he asked, the Congress would agree. 
uh, and you know, historically, most presidents have asked because they like more authority. You know, and this, this gives them more authority. And this is a president who says he wants to have more trade agreements. He, doesn't, he wants to have bilateral trade agreements, but they require authority. So my guess is that he will seek to have it uh, extended and that Congress will do that. But there is the, the contrary possibility that it would go away, and then it would be, it could easily be indefinitely postponed. So you're all getting a nice window into the real fun that we trade lawyers have had for the last year trying to figure all of this out, and this is but a mere scintilla of all of it. Yeah, in the middle. <laughs> uh, David Orden from Virginia Tech. So we've had a discussion of what if we get an agreement quickly, what would happen, what if Congress drags his feet. But let's go back to this question of what happens if, some, if, if the U.S. withdraws and somehow at some point the withdrawal sticks? Does that mean all our tariffs bounce back up to the WTO levels? Or does Congress have to act? And there's the issue that was raised about Mexico. There'll be pressure to raise tariffs in a certain sense, but there's also the real pressure that trade actually sort of has some real advantages and maybe there's some pressure not to muck up the system even if NAFTA uh, disappears. So what would the, so I guess I'm asking the, the panelists, what would, what would actually happen to US trade barriers if at some point along these timelines, we actually are out of NAFTA and Congress and the president have agreed we're out of NAFTA and NAFTA no longer exists? You want to go first? Sure. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but it's very unclear. Um, Taking, uh, and there's a couple of reasons. I mean, I think Ricardo made a wonderful point that there might simply be political pressure to simply go back to your MFN rates. There's also a legal obligation of the WTO to head back to MFN rates. That said, if we're talking solely about U.S. law. Article 24 stuff that otherwise you have to. Well, I mean, there's no more agreement. You'd have to go to the MFN rate eventually. Um, however, in strictly under U.S. law, the problem we have is we actually have three overlapping statutes that address U.S. tariff authority related to our trade agreements, the Trade Act of 1974, the Trade Promotion uh, Authority Agreement that governs whatever FTA we're talking about, and then the FTA implementing legislation. Now, if that isn't fun enough, we actually have multiple provisions in each law related to tariff authority and what the president can or cannot do. I'm not going to bore everyone because I can already see people dozing off. But the point is, simply I'll say, it's really unclear. There is a lot of overlapping rules. Some of the rules don't even make sense because the agreement might have, which like NAFT, for example, talks about reverting to pre-WTO rates for our, once NAFTA is withdrawn. Well, we we can't go above MFN rates, can we? Well, how do you do it? So... But that said, in these three laws, the president has a significant amount of authority to adjust tariff rates based on presidential proclamation or to simply rescind the old presidential proclamations that implemented the FTA's tariff rates. So with that, I mean, you know, it's a big mess. Let me, let me add. Go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Are, you I agree with that. I think that's, that's a, 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 a concise and precise analysis of the situation. Two things. Uh, an additional element of uncertainty is if the president did proclaim new tariffs, which he would probably have to do sooner or later if only to go back to the MFN rates, uh, does Congress have to approve those or not? Um, the statute is, uh, once again, ambiguous about that. It requires the president to submit his recommendations on tariffs to the Congress. 
but it doesn't say that Congress has any authority to act on the recommendations. Yet, it, by calling them recommendations, it raises the question that they have some role to play in, in acting on them, but that's not specified. So that's, that's one uncertainty. The other issue, of course, is there's a lot of things in NAFTA besides tariffs. And uh, my view has been that, in general, uh, because of the way the statutes are constructed, the, the only way the non-tariff things can be unwound is, is, is the same way they were wound. That is, if Congress passed a law to implement, an, a separate law to implement an, an after position uh, provision, it would have to be repealed. Uh, the, the demise of NAFTA does not automatically repeal all the separate statutes that were developed to implement various elements of it. Uh, likewise, if there's a regulation, trucking would be a good example, uh, that was promulgated to, in furtherance of our provisions, that would have to be unwound through the normal administrative process of proposing the regulation, comment period, and all that stuff to take you back to the status quo. The president can't simply, by fiat, under these laws anyway, proclaim the end of all this stuff just because NAFTA has gone away. So on the non-tariff part, I think Congress pretty, uh, on the, uh, in some areas, Congress clearly would have a role of acting. And if not that, then the Administrative Procedures Act would come into play, and that would have to play out. Ricardo. No, just to add to the confusion. Uh, Why not? <laughs> no, uh, and, and building on what have just been said, uh, it's not only tariffs. What about if you are assuming that the withdrawal will happen without any transitional provision, what do you do with all the Chapter 19 cases that are going on? What do you do with Chapter 11 process that are going on? What do you do with uh, notice of intents of Chapter 11 that have been filed? Are they considered within, without? What do you do with uh, all these mutual recognition agreements on professional services that are in place? So uh, it, I think it's a paradise for trade lawyers, uh, but, but it's, 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 it, it, it is not only about tariffs. It, it has a lot of implications across the board. And then I just add, it's a paradise for trade lawyers only if your clients are willing to accept, I don't know, as an answer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think we have one time for one more. Yeah, great. Last one. Great. I'll make it quick. I'm Ari Silman with AT Kearney. Um, and I just had a question about TPP and how a TPP 11 might affect Mexico and Canada's willingness to negotiate, given that the timeline has been pushed into 2018 and there's discussion of some sort of potential agreement by the end of this year. And Sounds like well, no, but I, I think Mexico and Canada have made very clear that it's a different agreement. And at the end, some of the balances that were there were not in, uh, are not in the NAFTA. And, and I think uh, you leave it like that. I, I, I don't, I, of course, there will be some texts that are similar that are put forward. But I, I do think that uh, I, I heard that Canada and Mexico has taken the position that you're dealing with a different animal and it's a different negotiation with different balances. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, there's always talk about, well, the Canadians could shift to Europe or the TPP party, same with Mexico. But there is also some economic reality. I mean, we share massive borders, massive supply chains, we being the United States. These countries are so integrated that there's really, I mean, from a practical perspective, there's not as much. I mean, 
know, they certainly, it, it provides a nice political, diplomatic lever. Um, economically, it's a little different. Okay. Well, with that, I'd like to thank our, our panelists for their insights. I apologize for confusing everybody at the end, but thank you.